Welcome to the Spawn Chunks, episode number 165 for Monday, November 1st, 2021. My name is Johnny, but the internet knows me as Pixorifs, and joining me as always is Joel Duggan. Hi, Joel. Good day, sir. I hope you have had a spooky Halloween, and if anyone else would like to hear more about how we spent our less than spooky Halloweens, you can check out The Render Distance, which is the extended version of the podcast. That's at patreon.com slash thespawnchunks. And you get to listen to that if you become a member by supporting the show. This is the first episode of November, so a huge thank you to all of our patrons for your support. There are 313 of you and growing. That is the most we have ever had uh, supporting the show. And uh, Johnny and I can't thank you enough. Uh, everyone, of course, gets access to the Discord uh, as well as the render distance, the extended pre and post show conversations Johnny and I have about other games we play, hobbies, interests, uh, extended episodes of the Minecraft topic sometimes, and of course, uh, holidays, food. Food dominates, I think, a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, there's a uh, lot of lot yeah, of food talk. A lot of food talk. Uh, nothing wrong with that, though. I make people hungry. It's kind of my MO. If you've seen my social media, then you know, you know <laughs> what I'm all about. Uh, and we are quickly approaching our next show goal of $500 per show, where that will unlock a monthly Minecraft hangout, uh, very similar to the quarterly hangout that you've recently heard us talk about on the show, where instead of discussing the podcast business, as we do on the quarterly hangout, we would just kind of hang out with our uh, patrons and talk about what everybody's been up to in Minecraft once a month. So hopefully that is a goal we will hit in the near future. And again, thank you to everyone for coming on board this month. Absolutely. Um, so have you done anything on the Citadel for uh, for Halloween? Do you tend to do any kind of Halloween decorations, throw a couple of jack-o'-lanterns around, or were you online to see the uh, the hordes of zombies and skeletons that show up with jack-o'-lanterns on Halloween, or was it a bit more of a quiet one on the Citadel this week? I did a double take working on uh, West Hill this weekend because I've been sleeping pretty regularly because I've been building and I want the daylight. And uh, as you're building new things, they become mob farms uh, and uh, it's you know imperative to sleep. And one of the perks of the mini map that I use is that it has a small clock on it. And mm -hmm. so at 18 minutes and 32 seconds, I know I can sleep. So I'm I'm on it usually. Um, but I did I did come around the corner and see a pumpkin walking across the room. I was like, what? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, it's on a skeleton. And because um the the quick scaffolding that I use to lay out these buildings uh is uh diorite. Uh so the skeleton blended in really well mm -hmm, <laughs> with the mm -hmm. diorite behind him. And I just saw this pumpkin kind of floating along. It's like, what is going on? Oh, it's Halloween. I completely forgot it was Halloween. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't think I saw any zombies. Uh I did on Saturday, but not on not on Sunday. Um so yeah, just just the one. Uh just the one. I didn't do anything spooky and um it's a pretty casual server. I don't want to throw any shade, but one of our members decorated their house for Halloween last Halloween and that's still up. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. when that kind of stuff doesn't go away, you're like, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. We we do some things at Christmas time where I think um, Cosmic or um, uh, Stephen ESC will will go around and like leave little um, chest presents, and then they'll also make like a, a funny design. Like last year, uh, Alistair was running around dropping off full meal packages, like Christmas dinner. Mm-hmm. And what he had done was designed a candy cane where he then hung a pig over a bonfire from the hook of the candy cane. <laughs> so, so he had like roast pig, and then he had everything. In, he had everything in a in a in a canister, like in a chest for you. That's was, pretty great. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was morbid, but it was it was pretty funny. I mean, the pig was alive. 
<laughs> yeah. And if it died, it was your fault, not his. It's like, hey, it's here. <laughs> yeah. I delivered you the pig. What you do with it is on you. So that that stuff was pretty funny. But no, we haven't I haven't done anything spooky. Uh, what I did do was uh, fill in and frame out the main gate road with foundations, roof lines, a tower, some gable plans and stuff uh, to try and finish off this main road uh, in the town. I want walking in the town through the main gate to feel a little bit more finished. And so uh, it was actually kind of fun because we had a lot of people coming by and uh, saying hi for the first time, which is always a fun experience, uh, especially because most of them were listeners to this show. And it was a cool opportunity to share my process of how I plan out a house from like the stick foundation frame to roof lines and things like that and choosing colors and trying to like go through like maintain the sight lines like you don't want to you've just built a cool house you don't want to block it by putting another big house in front of it so you're like okay well this one's going to be lower and maybe a less you know obvious color so stuff like that trying to get that layered look so as you walk through the town things are just revealed um trying to maintain the view of the keep which is not hard it's massive like it's it's you're not going to block it too too heavily but Mm -hmm. because you are down on the ground the higher the roof line the more of the wall you block so i was trying to make the keep feel large without blocking it completely um and of course struggling with what version of gray brown i'm going to be making things in the future uh and ended up going with a deep slate combo for uh, a big hall that is still in process everything everything in these screenshots that i've shared are are still very much in, in process but um i yeah i'm i'm getting better at liking deep slate uh when you have to use it a lot i just I wanted something dark and I didn't want to have a dark oak roof below the dark oak roof of the keep because when you look up at them, they blended together. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you, you couldn't see the difference. So having something a little bit more uh, stony um, and and a little bit more, um, I won't say polished, but I, the, the idea is that the town is supposed to be an older part of town. The farther east you go and the farther west you go, it's supposed to be slightly newer, more uh, like maybe more money, you know, involved in, in the, the buildings. And so I'm trying to shift my brain because I spent several months in the market area doing like basically, you know, oak, stone, thatch roof, like that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And now I'm into the fancier street where I've got like, you know, bone block in the towers. I've got calcite on the second floors. I'm doing fancier roofs. So I'm trying to figure out a, a way to kind of make this look like it's a little bit more established, been around a little bit longer. There was b- maybe more planning involved. So, um, so that's basically what I've been up to. It took all weekend, uh, because there's a lot of just up and down. A lot of your time is spent traveling, you know, 200 blocks away, looking around and saying like, oh, that looks good. Or nope, that's too high or that's too low. Um, and something that I should be doing more often is using scaffolding to quickly map in the height of things. Cause you can like, you can bang out scaffolding from the ground and then like, get it to a point where like that looks about right for a tower yeah yeah you know or go no that's too tall but if i knock two blocks off of that i bet you'll be just right and sure enough you know like that's that was where i decided to put the the tower roof and it saved me a lot of of guessing and blocks and so i I need to remember to do that more often as i'm building taller as i go westward in in this town to use scaffolding to say okay peak of the roof here peak the roof there and just kind of map out those high points. It's kind of an underrated use of scaffolding, I think. There's um, there's a couple of building tools in Terraria that allow you to lay over like a grid superimposed on things, and you can have like a ruler tool that lets you 
effectively oh, figure out like this is this many tiles horizontally this many tiles vertically and while i feel like that'd be immersion breaking for minecraft because you know so much of it is done from a a first person perspective and you're not going to have like a kind of flip down like a dragon ball z scouter like ar display kind of thing that'll show you like a ruler like that i feel like having tools in the world itself like scaffolding makes for a pretty good compromise on that front you know it's not going to display a number next to it that you know helps you count but at the end of the day having something that you can very quickly and easily measure the height of something and then take that down because it's not going to be a permanent feature is um is pretty underrated for survival building so that's that's a very smart play i like what you've done with that (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I've been playing an awful lot of Satisfactory because they had an update this week and they have some snapping features in the new update. And mm-hmm. I remember going into Minecraft and one, having my key commands, like my brain was all Satisfactory and I was oh, pressing yeah. the wrong buttons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also like missing the snapping, the lines, like being able to like build 10 things in a row and, and snap things to the side of things and, and from very far away in Satisfactory. So then going into Minecraft, you're like, oh, right. I have to climb all the way back up there. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and make this adjustment block by block, right? I think that's one of the hardest things about building at this scale in Minecraft. When you start to get into like taller roofs and things, it's looking at something, knowing it needs to be moved a block, shifted sideways. You know, you need to drop it down. You need to push it back, and you you can see what needs to be done from the ground. But then the moment that you're up on top of it, you're like, wait, which which block needed to be? Mm-hmm removed i find that really frustrating and then then ultimately you do the wrong thing or you get all the way up there and you realize i left the stairs in the chest at the bottom of the ladder (laughs) yeah (laughs) back down you go you know (laughs) yeah that that is always the problem i have is like you get up to the top you're like right gonna settle in for some building gonna do a bunch of work while i'm up here and then i open my inventory and there's either no room to pick something up or i've like left a bunch of supplies in the chest or my stone cutter is down there and i really need to make some stairs or something like that so yeah it happens to me all the time what have you been up to uh, work is continuing on the ant hill, which is where I was surprised by the uh, the husks wearing pumpkins, which in their case isn't such a big deal because um, the husks don't burn in the daylight anyway. So wearing something to protect their head was not really, you know, going <laughs> to make a difference one way or the other. Um, but the ant hill is is getting there. I don't have any real screenshots to share of it because I've only just started filling in, like at the edges where there are some smaller kind of peaks kind of branching off here and there i've only just started to fill in the materials there and it's not quite looking the way i want it yet so a little bit of trial and error needed there um but outside of that i've been sort of preemptively working on planning out survival guide season two now that we can assume that if what they said at minecraft live was accurate the next update is going to be coming within the next month and a half um I've kind of been planning some some episode zero stuff uh, because I wanted to approach this ahead of time and avoid what happened in the early stages of that series where I kind of get too bogged down with showing people the controls in the first episode and making sure everybody knows you know how to navigate a game like this and then I end up losing time towards preparing for surviving your first night in the way that people do. And I know a lot of the time more experienced players are just going to like grab a bed as soon as possible and sleep so they can skip the night and they don't have to worry about building a starter house. But I at least want to treat the survival guide like it's, you know, a tutorial for a player's first time experience. And if you're not used to like rushing through the early tools to get yourself, you know, some shears or just get an effective weapon to take down some nearby sheep, 
you're probably going to want to figure out how to get shelter before you figure out how to prepare for any of that stuff. So I want to remove the element of like I'm explaining very basic concepts of how this game operates and put them in like an episode zero or an episode 0.5 that people can optionally watch before starting the series and I go over stuff like settings, controls and probably uh, common terminology. Uh, so I don't have to stop and explain what I mean by mobs or chunks or something like that in episode one. And that's actually going to circle back around to the main discussion topic that we have planned for today. Uh, kind of goes hand in hand with something in, in the news too. Um, but beyond that, in preparation for Survival Guide, I've just been still spending a lot of time bouncing around the snapshots. Loading up a new world, seeing what it throws at me, looking for cool stuff, and trying to almost stress test some of the changes they have made recently when it comes to choosing a player's spawn location. And so far it's been pretty successful. I've usually spawned in an area that's at least got a tree nearby. I don't spawn on those, like, completely waterlocked, um, like, marooned desert islands in the middle of an ocean uh, at any point. Like, as far as I can tell, it always seems to spawn you near, you know, a decent landmass with some trees. And I'm hoping that that's one of the changes they have made. I know a lot of it was to do with making sure you spawn on the surface so you're not sort of in a, in a random cave, in, in a mountain or something like that. But for the most part, each of the spawn locations that I've been to has had some favorable conditions. And some of them have been pretty incredible. Like I'm spawning next to enormous deep slate ravines uh, not, uh, and, and like dripstone cave formations and stuff that you can see from the surface that are just like mind-blowing so I, i'm i'm almost looking forward to the survival guide in earnest now and thinking you know where am i going to end up and what is the game going to throw at me that i will end up with you know potentially some scenery like this it's it's an exciting time but i am maybe just looking forward a little too much to 118 instead of focusing on the stuff i've been working on the stuff that's in front of me right now I mean, that's something that, I mean, almost made the cut for our discussion this week, too, was like what our player is going to be doing in their worlds, you know, between now and and the release of 118. And maybe mm. we can just like, push that to another episode to, to not get too far into it now. But I've been thinking about the same thing. Like I've been thinking about like, I'm glad that I have this project on the Citadel in West Hill and that nothing that I'm doing on the surface was really affected by by 118 because all the blocks from 118 we basically have access to now anyway yeah so it's it's not um it's not something that's holding me back creatively um i am however not exploring anywhere because i'm just thinking like that just means i have to just trim new chunks so we've had that discussion as a server you know to say you know we're not gonna uh, explore for miles and miles and miles because it's just it's more work for me later on yeah um, yeah but yeah i just i've also been resisting i think i'm at that stage now where like i'm done loading up snapshots uh i keep track of twitter you know obviously to keep up with the news for the show but i look at screenshots but i i don't i think i want to wait and experience 118 in person when it when it comes out now um obviously i'll still keep up to speed for the show but oh wow that the the screenshot you just shared in, in discord is fantastic yeah, that was basically a couple of blocks away from where I spawned in this world, and like that's the kind of in the situation in which, as long as you can get down to that area safely, there's this kind of effectively like dripstone cave quarry in in the land, and there were some fantastic caves that went down to deep slate level and beyond at that point um as long as you can get down there there are plenty of resources on the surface even stuff like iron that people have been having a harder time 
getting hold of in earlier snapshots. Now there's a lot of that exposed resource just kind of sat there. And the, the ground level was, you know, maybe a little bit elevated from sea level, but it definitely goes down into a bunch of really interesting cave formations and stuff. And there's copper everywhere, and, like, it's it's such a, such a neat thing that you can spawn next to something that effectively gives you pretty abundant resources from the beginning. And it'll be really interesting to see when people are generating new worlds like this, what they end up with, you know, the hand that Minecraft deals them when they load up a new world. And if it's something like this, then I can see the next uh, season of Survival Guide getting off to a, a pretty flying start. The, I mean, that looks like it's 30, maybe 40 blocks deep. Like at, that at saves you a lot of digging. Yeah. And, digging. And, and there are caves and kind of carvers that go off in all sorts of different directions from there. So there are sections of the cave that you can just walk down to lower levels of deep slate caverns it's it was mind-blowing and yeah looking forward to seeing what i get uh, i imagine it won't be as lucky as this but i don't want to use up all my luck in the snapshots before i get to uh, get to make a full series out of it um let's let's talk about this week's snapshot then we might as well roll straight into the news especially considering that you're somebody who's going to be updating your world because we're starting to get a closer look at what that's looking like for java edition having seen it in bedrock edition betas before so minecraft java edition snapshot 21w43a was released this week and i'll quote here from the changelog article here is a snapshot from the blender in this snapshot, world generation around the edges of an old world will now be adjusted for a smoother transition to new terrain. This is the first iteration of the system, which we expect to keep improving. Keep in mind that if you try it out now, the results will be saved to your world forever, which, as we know, is quite a long time. Uh, better be safe than sorry. Make a backup before you try it. So in terms of new features for this snapshot... The edges between old and new world generation are now adjusted when you upgrade a world. In terms of how that works, when new terrain generates close to old chunks, the new terrain gets adjusted to better match the existing terrain at the borders, mostly in terms of, you know, the, the elevation of the terrain. Uh, as far as cave generation goes, in old chunks, if there is bedrock at a world height of zero, the column below will be filled completely with deep slate. Worlds upgraded in this snapshot will permanently have this deep slate, just a big old, like, from Y0 to Y-64, completely solid with deep slate. So... If you want new caves under height zero later, make sure you keep a backup of your world before upgrading, and then you can upgrade to that version later. The old bedrock between height zero and four in old chunks is just straight up replaced with deep slate, and the new bedrock layer is placed at the bottom of the world at height negative 64. Changes in 21W43A include the Priority Updates video setting has been renamed to Chunk Builder. We'll talk a little bit about that later as well. Uh, the amount of flooded caves near river and ocean coastlines has been reduced to make your caving experience a little bit better. Aquifer water levels change less often, so you'll encounter larger areas with the same water level more often. This means slightly fewer underground waterfalls, but slightly easier underground boat travel. Lava aquifers are now slightly less common, and big drip leaf generation placement has been restricted to clay, grass, dirt, farmland, moss, rooted dirt, podzol, and mycelium. There are some technical changes in this snapshot, of course. Uh, some internal details of block and fluid tracking have been changed to improve save times. 
While tracking should behave as before, it might be a good idea to test your redstone contraptions in a copy of the world with a backup, of course. And the chunk format has been updated. Four chunk format details are listed in the Minecraft.net article because it's the kind of thing that would be a little dry for us to read out on the show. Of course, there are some fixed bugs as well. A full, a full list of those is in the Minecraft.net article, but they include deep warm oceans generating without coal and sea pickles. That's been fixed. Deep warm oceans previously didn't count towards the adventuring time advancement, but now they do. A bit of stone generating randomly in the nether should have been tidied up, and lava pockets were generating in icebergs, which doesn't seem like the right sort of place for a lava pocket, so those have been ironed out as well. Uh, one other thing I wanted to highlight while we're still here in the news is a Minecraft.net article about Bedrock and Java Edition and the differences between the two. And I just wanted to highlight this as a useful resource for anybody who's confused between the two versions. The article breaks down the differences in terms of the headings platforms, game updates and early access, multiplayer servers, crossplay, realms, and mods and content. And it's not going to stray into subjective territory that we all like to hurl at things like you can do X with redstone on Java but not on Bedrock, since this seems like more of a guide for new players and most likely parents who are trying to get their heads around there being two versions of this game available on PC and then which which version of the game they are getting if they try it on other platforms. This also ties in with the upcoming availability of both versions of Minecraft on Xbox Game Pass, so I think it's really useful to have as a resource if anybody's getting into Minecraft but doesn't really know where to start. To touch on that quickly, I have had this conversation with friends who have children that are getting into Minecraft and the friends are like, what is going on? Like, I just, mm -hmm. you know, their, their, their main concerns were which which version is going to allow my kid to play with their friends and or play with me uh in in a way that I can have it be basically they're concerned about video games pulling kids away from family time yeah and mm -hmm. so their solution is like well i mean i i like this kind of stuff i could maybe play with them but then they're like wow but they're on a switch or an xbox and i'm on a pc and like so how do i swing this and so i've had i've had to have that conversation so it's nice that there's a resource out there that you can then refer to and say like look i'll explain it to you but if you forget this over the course of the next couple of days and you need to refer to it go back and check out the article mm-hmm yeah, definitely. Um, the uh, the one thing I wanted to highlight from this is the priority updates video setting, which was something I hadn't really noticed before. But in the process of my going through and figuring out what the episode zeros of the survival guide are going to be, I did a pretty comprehensive breakdown of what the video settings looks like. And it seems like the chunk builder... Uh, as it's now been named as opposed to priority updates is what it was before, controls how the game renders the environment around you when you're making changes to the world. So effectively, every time you break or place a block, it rebuilds the entire chunk very quickly to get an idea of like, okay, this is the new contents of that chunk because it's constantly updating the data that is saved in the world files as part of that chunk. And effectively, what this setting does is mainly a graphical thing, which is why it's in video settings. It sort of adjusts how the data is saved and how quickly the chunk updates and what resources Minecraft is using to update them so that occasionally, sometimes you'll notice if you're moving blocks around with pistons or if you're kind of placing blocks or breaking blocks quickly, there'll be a brief flash of like an x-ray through the terrain in a way. Like I think this probably happens with people for on like lower performance systems, but occasionally you'll notice those like holes in the world. Um, and that 
um, you know, that happens occasionally when you destroy a block if you have it on the default setting, and you can effectively compromise on that where if you change the setting, it won't happen that way so often. You won't end up seeing through the world as often, but you get those occasional, like, uh, performance hitches that happen. Like, remember when you used to break a, a, a tree trunk and... Um, there used to be like a little bit of like a, a, a hitch, like a, a bit of a bit of TPS or FPS lag because the game was trying to calculate its distance to relative to leaves and stuff like that. Right. So it, yep. it's kind of like a, a compromise between those two things. You get occasional like uh, visual information changes or you get occasional performance uh, hitches here and there. And they're not really going to be noticeable all of the time. This is just kind of in two fairly extreme examples and i've noticed no difference really switching between the two of them but it might be a consideration for people who are using older hardware to play the game i mean all of it sounds like a good way to try and mitigate the the tax that the new world size is going to have yeah. on older pcs right yeah and that, that's kind of why i wanted to go through the video settings stuff is like I, I can see that being a lot more necessary for people to understand, especially now simulation distance and render distance have been split into. Like, that's the kind of stuff that it's going to make more sense for people to have a deeper understanding of before they get into the game. And again, this is something we're going to touch on in the main discussion uh, a little bit later. Um, I loaded up one of the backup copies I have of the Empires SMP server, uh, where we've just kind of been testing out stuff for our empires and things. Um, I loaded this up in the new snapshot to check out the chunk borders, because those are now uh, clearly supposed to be blended and, and a little bit more subtle than they were previously in Java snapshots, where you could upgrade your worlds. Uh, they're good, they're not perfect, but they are definitely getting there. And I think it's important, once again, to emphasize what it said at the top of this article, which is they are working on it. This is the first pass at this, and they are going to be continuously improving this process as they get closer to 118 launching. Um, there certainly weren't any kind of sheer cliff faces or sudden mountains, the kind of thing that everyone uh, was worried was going to happen when all of these terrain changes happened. They are, there are perhaps inevitably a couple of biome transitions that mostly don't feel quite right um the biomes are not necessarily like borrowing blocks from the borders of each other in order to make that transition feel more natural so you end up with a snow biome generating next to a biome that might be a little warmer or you know it, it just looks like a fairly square kind of um line of snow starts generating in the middle of whatever biome was there previously um and I think that is really down to the way Minecraft loads terrain being in these, you know, 16 by 16 chunks. I think it's it's kind of difficult to avoid stuff like that. But from what I've seen in Bedrock Edition, things are looking better. Um, and so I'm hoping that it's the Java team's intent to continue uh, reaching for the kind of quality they've been able to achieve in, in Bedrock Edition so far. We have the biome blend setting that's recent i think that came in with update aquatic maybe mm -hmm. and i'm wondering if if eventually uh as they add layers to this blending if if the biome blend technology that they use in the game could be applied to the borders so that you don't get that straight line of like the bright green grass from the jungle next to the so-so grass of a taiga or you know or even just a plains biome you're going to see a difference yeah um it's fine when you see a block, but I, I'm used to seeing a biome blend. I don't use a big biome blend. I think it's like a five by five, maybe. That's the so, default, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I just, you know, it's it's not crazy. 
Um, and it really helps. I, you can still notice the shift. Like if you walk from planes into a taiga, you'll see the change happen, but it's not like immediate. Yeah. Uh, it looks more like the light falling off from a torch. Like you can still see the blocks uh, depending on what the settings you have, but it, it's not as as stark. And I think the big thing that throws people off is when you see like eight blocks in a row, like in mm -hmm. a straight line. And yeah. you're like, okay, that, that feels like, you know, very much a chunk, a chunk border. Yeah, um, definitely. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm I'm glad they're making this effort, and I applaud it. Like I'm 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 anxiously awaiting to see just how far they can get with this. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that they're able to do it at all is frankly pretty fantastic. So so good work and and keep it up. Um, and I don't think in in its current state it would really put anybody off updating their worlds like give or take the caves of course because the caves still aren't generating below y0 in old chunks they are just like i said pure deep slate all the way down um but i i do think you know even if they were left in this state in terms of the 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 blending it would be the kind of thing that people with older worlds and people with a sense of the history of like i've had this world for 10 years and i want to keep it going they'd be they'd be okay with it i think it's the kind of thing where if you've explored a world thoroughly and you just want new terrain outside of that, then you'd be okay with the compromise. But the fact that the team is planning on keeping it going and making it even better is, uh, yeah, definitely definitely worth uh, worth praising, I think. And I've been playing around with Biome Blend a little bit in like exploring those those video settings as well. And the area over which you can blend goes up to, I think, 15 by 15 or so, or uh, like on the on the the higher end of the scale and i find that that looks really good in oceans but doesn't look as good in uh, it looks good when you're like further inland but it can smooth over some transitions to microbiomes especially that i would be more interested in knowing that they were there and i'm going to do a couple of side-by-side -side comparisons when i end up explaining this feature in a video but if you turn the biome blend all the way off you see the borders of those biomes very distinctly and they are such a weird kind of unnatural looking jumble <laughs> that it's really like it's worth it to turn that biome blend feature up so that you can see it but then there are some biomes especially in newer generation which are small enough that if you turn the biome blend all the way up you can't even tell that they are there because the surrounding biome colors just overlap it so completely that the, the change in grass color is almost imperceptible at that point i think the problem comes into that more being like a rendering technology than it is a world generation technology so when you're looking at using something similar to blend between existing world generation and new generation for a start yes turning up that biome blend setting is gonna make a difference in biomes where it's just grass going into grass but then when you've got stuff like you know layers of snow generating in a in a tiger biome like a snowy tiger or something like that you're going to notice where that borders something else because the layers of snow aren't overlapping and since snow layers are a block in themselves and they're part of world generation that's not something that can really be blended over using a video setting like biome blend so i do kind of wonder if maybe they can you know add in a couple of snow layers here and there or maybe just have the existing biome borrow like lend a couple of blocks to the next biome over so that if it's stone around that area then a little bit of stone starts to blend into the grass and snow of the neighboring snow plains and that will like hopefully 
smooth out those or, or make those borders at least feel a little bit more more natural but i don't know too much about the process that they're going through here so once again the fact that they're uh, they're able to implement these kind of changes at all is uh, is really worth it given the generation changes and the tweets and analytics that we saw from henrik uh about that process i would imagine the level of detail and control is probably about the same in terms of like because it's not something that you want to have to hand do all the time uh in terms of like from a programming perspective i'd imagine what you need to do is set certain parameters but the only way to know how that works is like set a parameter run the game see what it looks like and go oh woof that doesn't look the way that i wanted it to or that works in these biomes but not those you know like and imagine there's probably a lot of different things to consider mm -hmm. and i hadn't even thought about like surface stuff like snow right yeah uh water also um having water blocks and lava blocks and stuff do things um i uh i appreciate the change of having lava removed from icebergs that would be weird um in in terms of like the way that things are generating but i i find too that something that i uh, i find jarring is not just chunk borders but like even the way that biomes um, border one another things like being in a badlands and then looking in t 20 blocks away in the ocean there's an iceberg yeah mm -hmm. i've always thought that was a little bit strange but I've, if memory serves they've they've had that adjusted where cold and warm biomes don't generate next to each other as often i don't think it's impossible but i i feel like i've i've seen that over the last few weeks where they're trying to say all right let's make this a little bit more more natural looking, I guess. Yeah, I think um, it is it's especially true of oceans now because ocean biomes were kind of, it felt like, handled separately from land biomes in terms of their placement. And so that was where you would get a frozen ocean generating next to a desert because the ocean biomes were added almost like, you know, of their own thing. And now they've had the opportunity to completely overhaul, overhaul overworld terrain. They've been able to tie ocean biomes to the same heat map that they use to identify where surface like land biomes are going to be and so much more often you get the frozen ocean generating next to a snowy tiger and you know the the difference it's looking for there is one of elevation to determine whether or not that should be you know an ocean or a cave system or a hill or a mountain versus the temperature just being this overall heat map that's applied to the entirety of the world and it makes a lot more sense geographically at that stage so i i really like what they've done with that i it's just the screenshot that they put in the in the the article but i really like what they've done with the badlands in terms of pushing layers up higher in the world with yes. the height adjustments and stuff mm -hmm. Uh, really, I mean, like I've been in those places, I've been hiking in South Utah and it really does evoke the feeling of, of those towers, those sandstone towers with the layers of sediment. And, um, obviously real life is not as brightly colored, but it's close. Uh, you can certainly see the different layers. And, uh, I just, I thought it was, uh, just a really nice looking, um, biome adjustment and i have to tip my hat to the chicken jockey <laughs> standing mm -hmm. on the top of the mountain pretty nice nice minecraft touch there i i, I definitely appreciate that especially because yeah. they're wearing a helmet <laughs> yeah. yes absolutely sunscreen right <laughs> it's back backlit by the sun as well yeah such a yeah uh, such yeah. a an, an iconic little mob um let's move into chunk mail because we've got a lot to discuss and we have a couple of really great emails this week so how about you kick us off with the first one Sure thing. If you'd like to email the show, send that email into spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. Please use that email address and make sure you have a decent subject line. Let us know if you're a patron as well when you write in. First email comes in from Major Fire. 
give a Vex a cookie. Hey, Pix and Joel. In episode 164, you were reacting to a listener email that suggested that giving an LA an iron sword might turn them into a Vex. That got me thinking. In order for players to use an LA as an inventory ahem, employees, a very large number of volunteers are going to be needed. If they can only be found naturally, that's going to vex the mad scientists among us. Traditionally, we'd expect breeding mechanics, but that's kind of boring. Nearly every mob we want in large quantities can be bred. What if instead one could give a vex a cookie? The vex could then drop its sword and become a friendly allay. This is more or less consistent with the zombie villager curing mechanics we already have or foxes interacting with items and would give players a good reason to craft cookies en masse and would make for some crazy farms. Mojang often talks about needing to balance risk versus reward, and if dancing among Vex trying to right-click them with a cookie is the risk and reward for a fully automated collection system for your world-eating miner, I think it might be worth it. Major Fire gave a Vex a cookie and now wants a glass of milk. I I love this. Uh, like, a really interesting possibility, and I, w- I will also point out that if you're using Minecraft's established breeding mechanics of like say you want to breed two cows you right click on both of them with wheat and they eat the wheat right uh with the mechanics that they've mentioned for the allay if we right click on an allay with an item it goes oh so you want me to collect that item (laughs) and so you can assume that we're either going to need to find some kind of workaround for breeding mechanics or we're not going to be able to breed them or the breeding mechanics or or whatever mechanics we use to create more allays are going to be non-typical. And so ideas like this really get my imagination going for what the possibilities are with that. That's a really, really cool suggestion. I really like the idea as well. I'm wondering if it might be a little bit too hard for mm-hmm. n- new players. Like I think think new players might really want the very cute LA and 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 have fun with it. But if you have to go up against a uh evoker <laughs> yeah. with 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 uh with vex around that might not be day one minecraft for some people yeah well so, I, yeah. I think i think the la seems like the kind of thing that you wouldn't necessarily get from day one anyway and well day one is an exaggeration yeah, yeah sure sure and i i do think it it ties the la to a risk reward scenario uh, which is cool i mean it requires players to find an evoker and makes them more challenging to farm um i think I doubt that's where all allays would come from, though. Like, I would I would expect that we'd be able to encounter one or two of them in the wild, mostly because an evoker isn't a possibility for peaceful players, right? So if the evoker is the only way of getting hold of allays, then it just wouldn't be accessible in peaceful mode right. at all. And um, while I think this is a fun idea for creating more, I do still like the idea that an allay can be found somewhere in the wild, whether it's, you know, a flower forest or, you know, somewhere a little bit more magical feeling. And yeah, it, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Evokers are kind of a hard mob to, if not contain, then at least, you know, set up in a way that the vexes are going to come to you systematically, <laughs> which is where I think the, the difficulty in like reproducing a bunch of these would would come from and yes you can surround them in boats to make sure that the vexes get trapped in the boats and that kind of thing but yeah i i think in terms of like 
it being an intuitive mechanic to the player, that's where the difficulty comes in, right? That's where, you know, if a player finds an allay in the wild, then, oh, fair enough, like, it's a helpful fairy that can bring the items that you give it. But then if you encounter an evoker and see a vex, is your first thought going to be, hey, I need to give this a cookie? (laughs) Or, Or do they have to create an advancement that maybe prompts the player to try that because they haven't tried it already or or something like that and and then what happens to them after that do the remaining vexes turn on the allay for being you know a, a traitor <laughs> like there, there's there's a little bit more i think um in world stuff that needs to justify the the vexes being turned back to the like the 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 come, come to the come to the dark side we have cookies but in reverse i suppose <laughs> nice i I kind of wonder because of the cuteness of the LA if there could be, and I don't know how you'd apply apply this in a way that would be intuitive to the player, but I'm wondering if there could be some sort of reaction. Like we had the glare was supposed to throw kind of a hissy fit if it was in a dark place that it didn't mm-hmm. like. Uh, and the LA, I just, I always go back to some Star Wars references when I think about this kind of thing. Like, do you remember when Yoda was digging through Luke's pack and basically just going, bah, bah, yeah, yeah, just, just like throwing, throwing stuff throwing out, throwing junk yeah. that he had no interest in. And then he found a flashlight. He's like, ooh, this is shiny. I'm wondering if the LA could, um, before it's, tamed you know before you've you're like giving it a cookie or giving it something that to then make it your lay something that will listen to you if you gave it some things like if you gave it roasted chicken and it just kind of throws it back at you and makes a funny noise yeah. you know mm-hmm. you know like a chirp or a, some sort of dismissive like Bleh, don't want that you know until you get a cookie and then it's like woo cookie and then it then it has little love hearts and it follows you around mm-hmm. I, I, that could be kind of a fun a fun way to have players experiment uh with it and i don't know whether an advancement would be a way to do that to suggest like what something you know give something sweet to an la or an la has a sweet tooth like that kind of thing might be able to prompt a player say okay well maybe sugar or cookies or something could be could be given um i i also i don't know if this is a mechanic that would feel good but in a lot of games, when you have automation, you have to also fuel that automation. So think like a truck on a truck route. It needs gas. If it runs out of gas, it can't do the truck route continuously. So you have to find a way to automatically fuel it. And I'm wondering if in order for an delay to continuously get the items that you want it to get, it also needs an item. Otherwise, it's going to get mad at you. Like mm-hmm. if it runs out of cookies, it's going to stop working and and say like, hey. And I'm I'm wondering only because of the jokes that... Um, that Major Fire made in, in the email about, you know, <clears throat> employees helping you for a very long time, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, kind of like kind of like villager housing. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, like that kind of stuff. And I'm wondering if if needing to sustain the LA would be a way to um, have that feel like a little bit less, uh, less like an LA overlord, but then also the idea of automation in a game is to set it and forget it. Like, I don't know if that's a mechanic that I would want to always have to go back and make sure that my LAs are full of cookies so that they're sorting my items. Because if they go on strike, that's going to break my sorting system. So yeah. like there's there's stuff like that that I, I think could be, it's an interesting idea, but ultimately it might not make it past like the the good good feeling game loop that we need in in, in the game. Yeah, you're already going to have to tie them to note blocks and have ways for the note blocks to go right. ding to let them know mm. when to drop stuff off. So, yeah, th- there's there's potential for the mechanics to get a little bit too convoluted at that stage. But in terms of the relationship between the Allay and the Vex, I think that is still something that the team can explore. And whether it comes down to this 
proposed mechanic of transforming vexes in sort of the same way that we de-zombify villagers. You know, there is precedent for mechanics like that in the game, but it's whether or not we're going to be able to do something like that, or if the transformation, if there is one, is more permanent one way or the other remains to be seen. But I like your thinking. It's outside-of-the-box thinking, which is uh, definitely something that benefits the community in the long term. A short side note, uh, the sign-off and intro to the email was based on a children's book called If You Give a Mouse a Cookie by Laura Numanoff, uh, Numeroff, excuse me, and the illustrations are by Felicia Bond. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Major Fire wanted to share that as well. Yes, yeah, I, I like the the reference. It did ring a ring a vague bell, so nice one. Um, this next email comes in from Rabelais, and the subject is the Wild Update, Part One? Question mark. Uh, hi, Johnny and Joel. Like everyone else within earshot of this podcast, I am excited to finally see Caves and Cliffs Part Two drop. Based on what was announced during Minecraft Live, we should see that update released sometime in the next few weeks. Since its original announcement in 2020, the Minecraft community has been arguing, theorizing, anticipating, dreading, and otherwise discussing Caves and Cliffs coming up on 14 months now. As a side effect of having the update split in half, is that there's been a fever pitch of excitement maintained for both update cycles. Considering the growth of the game over that time, do you think that the split has been an overall benefit? And if so, from Mojang's perspective, would it make sense to ring that bell again and split the wild update into two parts? Signed, Rabelais was killed by a creeper that he noticed was distracted by writing a lengthy email. So I'm just going to straight up say no. Uh, I think it's probably in Mojang's best interests to announce updates with a scope that they can comfortably complete in their now biannual update cycle, yes. which is usually late fall or the holidays and then early summer, coinciding between usually it's around like before kids get off school for Christmas holidays and before kids get off school for summer, usually in the Northern Hemisphere anyway. Um, I do think though that if there was a big update, something that required the full year Rather than attempting to do it in a short term, I feel like Mojang could get ahead of a future big update and set the expectation that it will arrive in two parts. They know that the community is receptive to that when it's a bit of a surprise, as we had with Caves and Cliffs. So stating it from the onset, if it was needed, uh, that the game update will take a full year and that the first half is going to be phase one, you know, uh, update June, phase two, update, you know, November, whatever. Um, I don't think that there would be pitchforks per se, mm -hmm. if the update was big enough. Like if, if, if the scope of it was like players going, whoa, okay, I get, I get why this is taking such a long time. Um, however, though, I, I do think that, uh, as something that I, I think I would prefer, uh, as a player, you know, as a, someone that kind of consumes this game is smaller updates uh in more frequent nature i think i think it it's it's better for players i think it's better for the team in terms of um just workload and, and all that kind of stuff i can't speak for all of them obviously only just the idea of of burnout in the industry and all that kind of stuff uh, uh the challenges of having a pandemic during all this i think that keeping the updates something that is achievable in, in their update cycle is probably the better better course. Yeah, I, like I, I agree. I doubt they'll want to split the wild updates uh, because of, honestly, the scope of it doesn't really seem as big as Caves and Cliffs did, especially once they got into it and they realized that, you know, 
overhauling mountains wasn't just going to be, well, one biome is going to change. It was the entire overworld terrain generation has to undergo this big shift. You can now see in retrospect why they decided that was a good idea to make sure that all of this stuff was going to work out. But as far as the wild update goes, they've clearly announced it with what seems like a more achievable scope. And it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that could balloon outwards into, okay, now we're overhauling way more than we ever expected to or even announced that they were going to in the first place. Um, considering the only content that has been announced for the wild update so far is this expanded version of the Deep Dark, which has already been, you know, expanded outwards from its original vision. It was on the slate for 1.17 before the Caves and Cliffs update split. And then on the other hand, we have Swamps, which have been on the waiting list since the 2019 biome vote. I doubt that delaying either one of those again because the scope has expanded is necessarily going to look good to them. Like, as far as, like both Mojang and the players are concerned, it doesn't seem like a good PR move at this point. And I expect they have come into the announcement thinking about that. And if they, like you said, if they wanted to, you know, set expectations that this could arrive in two parts, they would have told us that up front. I think the the Caves and Cliffs update has not just been a learning experience in terms of the scope of an update, it's also been a learning experience in terms of what the community can expect from Mojang's style of communication about all of the stuff that they're doing, and it set precedent for them to be able to tell us, okay, this update's going to come to you in two parts, and the community going, okay. And I think now that they've done that, they probably want to make sure that they get ahead of announcements like that so they don't cause any kind of community upsets if announcements like that have to have to be made. Um, based on what we've seen of the Wild Update so far, though, we saw in-game versions of both the Deep Dark, Ancient Cities, and the Warden, and Swamps. We saw all of those in-game at Minecraft Live, you know, and it, it seems fair to say that they at least have a working prototype of the stuff that they're going to be adding for the wild update at this point. Um, the one outlier to this is birch forests, because they did show some concept art for changes to a birch forest to make that biome in particular more immersive. And they highlighted it as a biome that was in need of a little bit more of its own character, but they didn't show any of that in-game. So in theory, as far as I'm concerned, if they loosely have plans to improve birch forests for the wild update, but they need to cut some features for time, they could put birch forests to one side without, you know, drawing the ire of any but the most pedantic players who said, no, you said you were going to update birch forests as well. They, they said that a birch forest was one of the things that they are going for with the vibe of the wild update in terms of adding new stuff, but they didn't necessarily show us, yes, this is the update that's coming to birch forests. They weren't specific about any of the features. Um... So Alcorn in our chat is saying that they hope that Birch and Swamp is just a taste of the wild update. And that I hope is true as well. But I do find it difficult when they've called it the wild update and not the deep dark update and not the swamp update. Yeah. And because of that, I feel like they've opened themselves up to say if they have time or if they are able to update other biomes like deserts, savannas, birch forests, uh, along with the swamp, then they could add it without announcing it first, right? Uh, under promise, over deliver. Right? Yes, exactly. Uh, like that. That's that's the approach I'd like to see from them. And I think mm -hmm. from, the, from the community's perspective, it's much healthier for us to take the kind of, 
I'll believe it when I see it approach. Like, once you've seen something in-game, you can think, oh yeah, that's probably coming in this update now, versus projecting all of your hopes and dreams onto, well, this could be the update where they sneak in six other updates to biomes, and thinking, no, you need to you need to slow your roll and maybe understand also that they are playing the long game. Once again, we've talked about this in previous shows, but Mojang has plans to keep Minecraft updates going indefinitely, and so they've got to hold back some of that stuff, even if it might be something that they could chuck a couple of features at, say, a Badlands or a Savannah in the meantime, if they can wait until they have an opening in their schedule to make things even bigger in terms of what's being added to those biomes, then potentially it's better for the lifespan of the game for them to do that instead of just throw another mob and another block at one biome and call that an update yeah and i and i think too that you could lump some biomes together like if you wanted to update badlands desert and savannah all in one update you could call that something like you could find a theme for all of the hot deserty type biomes and, and update them all at once right um, so again, like I just, there, there's sometimes where I think like, man, I'm surprised they didn't just go with like waiting and doing like the swamp update. But then again, like maybe one biome isn't enough, you know? So I flip flop back and forth as to what they meant by the name, but I I'm, I'm along for the ride and I'll have some more thoughts on this actually in the post show. Yes. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that in a second. We, um, I do, I do want to point out as well in terms of the scope of, future updates you've got to remember that mojang knows there are so many different play styles out there they want to cater to everybody at least in some form or another with each of these updates so when you look at frogs and and the the mangrove kind of swamp uh suggestions they're talking about frogs potentially having a variety of functionality that might have appeal to technical players you've got a couple of blocks in mangrove wood and the new root blocks and all sorts of you know additional mud blocks and stuff that are being added that are going to appeal to builders explorers are going to have fun finding all of these blocks and so there's a little bit of something for everyone whereas if you just take the features that they promised for, say, the Badlands thing, you had a vulture, some tumbleweed, and a different type of cactus, I think. And none of those on the surface seem like they have immediate technical, you know, appeal to anybody. Um, and, and you know, while explorers and builders are going to have fun with some of that stuff, you've got to remember that they want each of these updates to appeal to the broadest possible groups they can. And so it's it's worth considering that when you want them to just chuck a couple of features at something and call it an update, there may be a lot more consideration that goes into that stuff for the benefit of the, the community in general. So what do you think we move into the main discussion this week? Let's do that. So um, this is sort of inspired partly by the Minecraft.net article where they were talking about the differences between Bedrock and Java and priming people to understand those differences ahead of time, especially if they're just getting into Minecraft. And talking about the stuff that I was preparing for my next season of Survival Guide, I started a Twitter thread this week asking people what sort of community jargon and terminology they wish they'd known more about ahead of time when they first started playing Minecraft. Especially since Minecraft doesn't really have a story you can spoil. Um, I thought, considering that a lot of people get into Minecraft from, like, you know, watching people play Minecraft in videos and on streams and so forth, I'm sort of wondering what is it beneficial for players to know before they take their first steps in Minecraft, um, with a little bit of a caveat, which I'll, I'll get back to a little bit later. I think it's honestly better 
if you go into Minecraft blind as as possible, if you if you go into Minecraft without having seen much of the game beforehand, but if you're going to immerse yourself in the community before you get your first hands-on experience with Minecraft, uh, let, let's approach this from the perspective of what we wish we had known ahead of time about this game. So I think going back to my first time in Minecraft, which for me, it was guided. Like I had... Uh, my friend Steven and his sons play uh, with me online and that kind of helped me walk through mostly it was it was Steven uh, but for me I think the hardest part was the mob spawning and having not been my first video game spending a lot of time in World of Warcraft I understood what spawns were you know like I understood that that you know what a mob was uh, but it was like how those mechanics related to Minecraft. So when you say mob spawning, it can mean a number of different things depending on what game you're in. Mm -hmm. And I and I think for me that was the most confusing part. Um, other than that, I think the mo the most challenge I had was just learning the mechanics of moving around and, and things like that. But that's all just that's all technical control things and muscle memory and and getting your you know custom key you know hotkeys and stuff sorted. Um, I, in terms of other language and things like that, the other stuff I think that was maybe over my head at first was, um, when I was watching people play the game on YouTube, which is how I learned about how the real mob mechanics worked, uh, was, um, redstone ticks. That's, mm -hmm. that's the one thing that I remember from watching early redstone videos. I would understand the switches in terms of on off. I would know you know, signal strength seemed pretty straightforward. Redstone powering, you know, 15 blocks, that kind of thing. But redstone ticks and how repeaters and different delays worked and what people meant by a five tick delay or a 10 tick delay and how that related to the game, what that meant in real time. Because I think that was the thing. Redstone ticks, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, refer to a 20th of a second. Uh, I think uh, it's game ticks are a 20th of a second and redstone ticks are a 10th of a second okay so then even yeah. more confusion that still you yeah. know permeates to this day so the fact that they're different is weird uh and when you're when people are talking about those ticks very rarely do they tell you in real world terms what it is i mean it doesn't take very long to look up something in minecraft and realize that you're dealing with one meter by one meter blocks so they think you think okay you know, a thousand blocks is a kilometer. So you can kind of get a sense of scale and a sense of, of distance and size and stuff like that. But in terms of a sense of time, like the sun goes up and the sun goes down in Minecraft, but like, unless you're timing it with a stopwatch, unless you have some sort of third party, you know, plugin or something like you, you, you don't get necessarily a clock in the game. Uh, unless you have a potion counting down, there's no real time. Uh, and so I, th I found that the redstone ticks and, and I didn't even know, I think, I don't think I knew about game ticks until later. Uh, I didn't really understand what that was for the longest time when I started. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's definitely something that you can approach a little bit later as well in terms of like for the first, uh, few gameplay sessions, you don't need to worry about interacting with redstone too much, but then yeah, when you get into 
like community built contraptions and the way that the community needs to share knowledge about that stuff redstone ticks and game ticks come up a lot <laughs> and it, again it's it's immersion breaking language at that point because you are breaking the game down into its component mechanics instead of you know going in there and making mistakes and kind of fiddling around with stuff in game which unlike real world electricity you know you're not gonna you're not gonna take too much damage from redstone contraptions unless there's anvils falling on you or something but um yeah i do think redstone ticks are the kind of thing that while you get into them later maybe if you're coming at the game from the perspective of seeing all of these technical players and wanting to emulate the stuff that they do it definitely helps to have a basic understanding of that um for me i think just the term mobs is my best example of this because i had never heard the terms mobs in in gaming before minecraft and apparently it is used throughout game development and and gaming in general it's a shortened term for mobile entity uh, which is still something i have to look up to remind myself because i never think of them that way but um, I think because the the word mob is a pre-existing word, which we think of as a collective term, like an angry mob, you know? Like if you think of a mob of zombies, for example, like that translates pretty well as an image in Minecraft. But then describing an individual skeleton or creeper as a mob was kind of new to me. And that's a mistake that I see a lot of people making in terms of you know learning to communicate in minecraft terminology they don't quite know what mob means if they haven't heard the term used elsewhere and so that's a word that i know i'm going to just use casually all the time in the minecraft survival guide when i'm talking about you know a mob farm for example or saying like we need to go and find some mobs or get mob drops or something like that where you can't use a collective term for monsters and animals and you know player created golems and villagers that's going to encompass all of them besides just calling them all mobs i think it's a term i'm going to use and i'll need to explain to people what that means so they don't get too confused at the end of the day um i think the, the next thing is probably to do with chunks and the spawn chunks uh aside from this podcast haha um knowing what a chunk is i think is really useful for not tripping yourself up in early game um because of the way the spawn chunks of a world are a little bit different and again this is stuff that you don't necessarily need to know on your first time through but then when it comes to starting new worlds more experienced players will think about do i want to leave the spawn chunks behind and go elsewhere in the world so that i can come back and build some stuff that's permanently loaded in this part of the world i think those are some of the things that if you have aspirations to keep your world forever it can be really helpful to know um and i think a lot of people still have the misconception that a chunk is a 16 by 16 by 16 cube when it's not it's actually a 16 by 16 by full height of the world you know 256 or now 384 cuboid and i i think people don't always remember that fact they're thinking about sub chunks being 16 by 16 by 16 cubes and so clearing up misconceptions like that is something that i think as a member of the minecraft community i want to do a better job of so that people have a better understanding of the mechanics of this thing if that's the stuff that they want to dive into um going back to your example of mob spawning though i think this is an area in which the developers are making some really good changes um and 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 hats off to them for how monumental this is going to be in that light levels were 
difficult to explain before. I mean, they weren't too difficult to explain numerically, right? But I feel like then you have to open up your F3 screen and look at the numbers or do a lot of counting out from light sources in order to understand this is the threshold below which hostile mobs will start spawning. And now all you have to do is tell people mobs won't spawn where the light is. <laughs> and that's it. And that's, I think, a really great change because it makes mechanics like that more intuitive and diminishes the amount on which you have to rely on technical details, especially for early game stuff. You still can later on, especially when you want to engineer things to have a certain amount of light in them or withhold the light from an area if you want monsters to spawn there. But I do think it's such a valuable change from a community understanding perspective to change mob spawning so that they have to spawn in complete darkness. Even adopting the phrase complete darkness instead of saying light level zero is going to make this game so much more palatable to people who don't think of things in those highly technical terms. So I think that's a really interesting change. I, I remember being frustrated with stuff and having to go outside of the game to either the wiki or to YouTube or, or other places to to get brushed up on it. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It, 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 at first it didn't feel good, but you quickly learn so much so fast that you're just like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, well, now I know how to do it that moment is passed. And once you kind of like get over it, it becomes just the norm. And I I had trouble when, when you posed this question this week, trying to think of things that I came across because I would come across the term not in game, but like watching a YouTube video, but then I would immediately be explained what the term meant and how it would apply in the game. So then it was a mystery for 10 seconds. And then it was like, oh, okay, well, that's what that means. Mm -hmm. And I guess at a certain point, I just, I reached a point in my Minecraft play where I just let go and realized I'm not going to be able to learn things from inside the game. This game has two spaces, right? There's in the game and then there's the community around the game. The kind of meta and game, yeah. The meta game, yeah. And I find that you just... You kind of had to embrace, at least when I got into it, which was just at the end of 111, uh, just before the color update, before Concrete came into the game, um, and and glazed terracotta, because uh, I remember my Nether Hub was all black and red. Um, so yeah, like it, it's one of those things where you kind of like you have to accept that because I remember much like a, I think a lot of players watch your Survival Guide series to get into it. Uh, I was watching Paul Soros Jr. Mm -hmm. and his survive and thrive um uh idea and in a way like there's a lot of nostalgia there like i'd love to i mean we've talked about this before on the show where like going back and experiencing the game for the first time like i even remember i even remember like the smells in the apartment you know mm -hmm. uh like i just remember how green it felt how how new it felt how uh alien it felt to me um, to, to get into this and kind of like navigate my way around. Um, and also how quickly I was just sucked into learning and trying to come up with and trying to, you know, figure things out for myself and either getting frustrated or like trying to figure out certain mechanics for certain things, thinking like I could do this. It seems pretty straightforward. And then of course the game doesn't behave how you'd expect it to. Now, a lot has changed since then. And I think Minecraft has become more intuitive over the last four or five updates. Um, than it was when I first started. And um, and to that point, like I, I really do uh, 
appreciate the game development, you know? Yeah. Um, I still think there's a lot that pushes you outside. Like there's still a lot to just like that leaves you outside the game, but, but it's better than it was. That's, that's for sure. Um, this wasn't necessarily a term or, or something outside of the game that uh, I found um, bewildering, but I didn't understand the reason behind it. And because of my math history, I found that this, the coordinate system was, was confusing, counterintuitive. Uh, height values operate as you anticipate. You know, you go, uh, the higher you go, the higher the number. Uh, but then when you start to go uh, north, south, east, west, south being, uh, you'd expect south to be negative and north to be positive because of how a compass rose is drawn on a map, because of how integers are expressed in math. You'd expect that to be the norm, but it's backwards, mm-hmm. you know? And so going south is positive and going north is negative and it just it could be a symptom of living in the northern hemisphere um so again it wasn't necessarily like a term that i found confusing but it was a game mechanic that i found counterintuitive and i always had to go outside the game for my first little while to figure out like why like where am i going like what how do i go in this direction uh and why is it like this and i always thought that that was uh tricky i do remember also having to look up now while we're talking about coordinates uh i remember having to look up how they calculate like the points so like uh the thing that i found confusing about the y coordinate was that like what you're standing on versus where your head is in terms of what height the game is reading you at Mm -hmm. right so i've always i've always counted blocks based on what i'm standing on but what you're standing on is not necessarily what you're standing on it's what you're standing in Right. And so yeah. like the, that, that gets a little bit confusing too. So you just, you have to kind of pick one and then stick to it within your world as like, <laughs> yeah. you know, if, if, if I'm going to call this, if I'm going to look down and say, this is 64, then I'm not going to say, well, I'm standing technically inside of 65. I'm on 64. So I'm looking at 64 and that's what I use for my measurements. Um, but yeah, I, I found that really confusing at first too. Yeah. The, the coordinate stuff is, is odd. And I think some of it makes more sense to me than other stuff. Like for example, um, the, the East West thing with East being positive and West being negative in terms of the coordinates that you go into on the, I guess that's the Z axis or is it the, no, it's the X axis. That's the X Um, axis. Yeah. Yeah. If if you think about it as, as a graph drawn on, on 2d, dimensions you know and on on paper then obviously y is going to be your upwards and downwards axis and then x is going to be your left to right axis and usually you know if you're drawing a graph that way the x-axis extends out to the right and that's the direction in which positive values go and so if you're facing north then it makes sense that going to the right would be going into the positive numbers but then it's the north south being negative and positive that i don't quite always get however uh i've been testing a little bit of this when i wanted to talk about this uh did you know that in every java edition world the player spawns facing south (laughs) um this this is something that i hadn't realized before now but the sun always rises on your left and you're always facing towards positive z um and i'm not sure why (laughs) um it's also kind of worth noting that before the um the first proper release of, of of minecraft java edition java 1.0 um the sun used to rise in the north and set in the south and i presume was changed to be more realistic for for folks in the northern hemisphere at least because um you know you end up orienting yourself by where you know the sun to rise in the real world 
Um, and so everyone assumed that the sun was rising in the east, and if it was rising in the north, then that didn't necessarily make intuitive sense to people who knew more about real-world geography. Um, so it's it's odd <laughs> that, and I, I think that's that's such a such an interesting like thing that in in every world the player faces south when you spawn in for the first time i don't know if that's the case on bedrock edition as well it may not be but i i think it's interesting that you're always facing towards the coordinates that the number will go up if you continue in that direction if you walk forward then you're walking into positive coordinates and i don't know if that's why it certainly doesn't seem to have any bearing on latitude because latitude degrees are calculated based on the equator but if you go south you go into negative latitudes and if you go north you go into positive latitudes and they end at 90 of course because of the north pole but um yeah i i'm i'm not sure why it makes sense for north and south to occupy those values unless maybe the assumption is that once you get into 3d dimensions your next move is to face east to figure out which way north and south are at which point north is to your left going into the negatives and south is to your right going into the positives but again no idea <laughs> it's 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 a system that they just kind of had to i assume pick one i'm not sure if mathematically it made more sense to do one than the other or if that's just the way it's calculated in games anyway and that's just something that you know they had to choose at some point a standard for that and players have to go along with it the other terminology that I remember finding challenging to wrap my head around at first in game um, were the enchantments. I, I I have them all straight now, I think, but like it just it's I found that trying to figure out the differences between haste efficiency and unbreaking. Uh, sure, you had like sharpness three is better than sharpness two, but by how much? Like what? Like why is it important? You know what does it what does sharpness actually do now again having experience in other video games you're like okay sharpness good you know i don't want a dull mm -hmm. sword you know like you, you can kind of get there but then you get into like haste versus efficiency and like depending on the game those can be different things right is one faster yeah. is what you know efficiency could also be translated as faster you're like it, just, it depends right so i i feel like um the, that kind of stuff was my next layer of of confusion as to which enchants I wanted on. And also, I think I think it's still true. I, th I think that at, at the time there has been a lot of changes to it, uh, in enchantments, but like what what enchantment goes on what weapon? You know, like, yeah, I want an efficient sword, but like that doesn't work. So like in game and like until you go and look outside the game, oh, these can only go on these weapons and these tools. You're like, okay, well, those are the rules. I'll accept it, but I don't know why. Yeah. I had a lot of problem with why in the game, you know, because <laughs> I'm analytical like that. I'm very logic based, very straightforward. And so when stuff doesn't have an actual reason, you're just kind of like, but I want an efficient sword. Why can't I have one uh, in a sandbox game? You're like, do anything you want except for this. And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. But why? So, uh, so yeah, I felt like a two-year-old, but why? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think the interesting thing is some of the numerical information that would be really useful to players is hidden unless you enable advanced tooltips in java edition so you're not going to know the exact numeric durability of one of your tools unless you turn that on and that's still something that you i don't think you can have in bedrock edition you can see your weapons attack speed and attack value now like in terms of the damage it can do but i think that was only introduced after 1.9 and i think for a while that may even have been an advanced tooltips thing and so now you can see the adjustment that sharpness makes to your tools 
but then you can't see how much additional damage you're doing with something like Bane of Arthropods because it doesn't want to tell you this will do 12 damage but only to spiders that's a lot of information for it to convey in that in that field so yeah i agree it it does get a little bit confusing in that thing but that's that i think is at least a kind of it's the acceptable notion for the kind of stuff that you can feel out through gameplay um i think there are still some things like the maximum levels of some of those enchantments considering that you cannot get efficiency five typically out of an enchantment table on tools like you know your diamond pickaxes the stuff that you're going to be using more and more frequently and so a lot of that has to be found through either trial and error or you luck into a village that has an enchantment with a librarian that will give you an efficiency five book and then you go oh efficiency five is possible and you know that's the kind of stuff that i think people have gone to the minecraft wiki long before to find out what the maximum levels of some of these things are to see what they should be aiming for um but yeah i i can see that certainly being something that it helps to know ahead of time or the kind of stuff that you dip into the community for clarity on that information so that you don't see a efficiency five and then immediately assume that efficiency six is somehow possible that kind of thing and the thing I want to wrap up this discussion with really is how much of this knowledge is game-breaking or at least immersion-breaking. Because as I was saying before, I definitely feel like players without any Minecraft community experience should dive into Minecraft headlong without learning any of this and feel your way around the world first because that's really an experience you're not going to get back. And I think like going in with a sense of wonder and interest in the world around you and curiosity and making mistakes and trying to play your own way before your actions end up getting dictated by the community and people's sort of pre-existing ideas of how minecraft quote-unquote should be played i think it's nice to have that purity of experience but minecraft is definitely a game where it is clear from very early that there is much more to this game than you will be able to figure out on your own and so it naturally draws people into immersing themselves in videos and streams and like the, the discoveries that the player community has made and in some cases the desire to learn everything about minecraft before they even get their hands on it comes from seeing all of that stuff beforehand from your introduction to minecraft being you know, a highly technical YouTube Let's Play series or something like that. And I think personally, if I went into Minecraft knowing all of this stuff beforehand, instead of just having some kind of peripheral, a bunch of players messing around in the sandbox element, but not getting too technical. Like if I went into Minecraft with, with all of that technical knowledge beforehand, I think I might've enjoyed myself less. <laughs> you know, I think there is definitely value to be had in like going in and having that authentic first time experience and then realizing later that all of it can be governed by more technical aspects and that you 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 gradually accumulate more of an idea of how much control you can have over the game i think it's nice to learn that step by step instead of going in primed with all of that knowledge beforehand in in terms thinking of the world as a cohesive world instead of a series of chunks I think is going to make more of a difference to uh, to people's gameplay. It, is that something? Is that an opinion you share? Are you happier having gone into Minecraft a little bit clueless beforehand, or do you think that people need more of a primer to really get get to grips with the game? It's more rewarding to go in as cold as you can. Uh, my, 
I think the I think my preferred way, uh, and this could be just my own experience, but I, I see it a lot where I think having a guide, like playing with someone that already plays the game, and they don't necessarily have to be someone that is at a level where they're making YouTube videos, but like someone that has been playing the game for a while, um, but also is a good sandbox teach sandbox teacher in that they're not going to hold your hand, right? They're going to say, you're on your own. I'm here if you get frustrated. Because I think what people want is to get into the game and not get frustrated to the point where they want to quit, right? Mm-hmm. Or they lose interest. And the person that wants you to play with them is the same way. They don't want you to go in and just like sink in the quicksand and be just like, this is just overwhelming. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not finding this fun. Um, and save you some trouble and say like, look, okay, well, we need to make beds so that we don't get, you know, killed by mobs because it's going to get dark soon. Mm-hmm. And so having that initial like uh, conversation where someone is saying, okay, it's a survival game. What do we need to survive? And the person's like, okay, we need food. You know, the, the new player's like, we need food. We need shelter. Um, how do we do that? You know, chop down a tree, like that kind of stuff. I think having someone guide you, but not handhold you and not explain everything or do everything for you is probably a good way to go. Um, because I, I think that I would have been a little bit lost had I just loaded it up on my own, having come to it by some other means and gone into it. Um, I, I feel like it's, it's a rewarding experience. I'll use farms for an example. Uh, it's, it's a rewarding experience to get in there, realize that you can plant seeds, wait for them to grow up while you do other things. You learn to multitask. You used to plant, you learn to plant things that take time and, and set things up that take time before you go and mine for half an hour. So then when you come back, things have grown up and you've got food. And I think it's better to have done that before realizing later on that there are like mechanics where villagers will actually harvest stuff for you and there's ways to get chests of wheat if you want it uh but that doesn't feel as rewarding unless you've harvested wheat by hand before (laughs) right Mm -hmm. if you just go into the game knowing that you can do that from a youtube video and that's the only way that you have ever harvested wheat uh outside of just getting enough wheat to start the thing i don't think it's as fun uh it's 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 a mechanic that i see across a lot of the different games that i play where they make you do stuff by hand for a little while and then you you have the abilities unlocked to do it either automatically or have it be more fun or look cooler or whatever it is, you know, even something as simple as, you know, upgrading your Minecraft pick, right? Um, going through stone with a wood pickaxe takes a long time mm-hmm. compared to later on in the game where you could eventually have a beacon and you're like popcorn, you know, mining everything. Uh, and that is not as fun unless you spent an hour digging a tunnel with a wood pickaxe yeah uh, or or stone pickaxe like it just it's it that kind of juxtaposition is is i think what makes that experience better the only thing i i find is that as i try to introduce other players to the game that it's either not their type or they looked at it and they've always dismissed it i do find that i want to get them in but i know certain people's personalities if they were just left to their own devices they'd be out in 20 minutes and just mm-hmm. wouldn't come back yeah yeah, and I, I think it's it is important to recognize that the game introduces concepts to you itself fairly slowly, and it's not going to be at everybody's pace. But it does take time to get kind of up to speed with everything that's possible. And and again, like it, it everything that's possible is now something that you know even the most experienced players are still learning more and more about. So 
I think there's still a, a lot of room for it, but you can ultimately take your time. And when it comes to community sharing knowledge about everything, then hopefully there's there's terminology out there that you can understand without it being too much of a reach um that is going to be it for this episode of the spawn chunks folks thank you so much for listening uh, you can find more information about the show and links to some of the stuff we've talked about today at thespawnchunks.com the music for the show is composed by me and the spawn chunks is proud to be a listener supported podcast as joel said at the top of the show we are incredibly grateful to our patreon community for supporting us in making the show and if you get some value out of the show please consider putting some value back in you can visit patreon.com slash the spawn chunks to join our community pledging at any level gets you an invite to our patrons only discord chat you can listen to the show live as it is recorded each week and it also gets us closer to our next goals which might involve having a monthly minecraft audio hangout with you and the rest of our community uh we're currently at 313 patrons once again the most we've ever had supporting the show but there is always room for more Special thanks go out to our content engineers, Ramsey 718 Hunter555, Jumbo Sale, and Yitz. Thank you for your support on this episode. Sharing the podcast with your friends is the easiest way to support the show. You can find us at The Spawn Chunks on Twitter and Instagram. Personal recommendations, however, are the best way to share the podcast. Just poke a friend in the arm from a safe distance and tell them that they should listen to The Spawn Chunks, and they can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube, really wherever you can find a podcast. The email for the show is spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. The RSS feed is linked on the spawnchunks.com and the Patreon-only RSS feed is on the Patreon page. That's where you can listen to the Render Distance, the extended version of the podcast. My name is Johnny, but online I go by Pixelriffs. You can find most of what I do at youtube.com slash Pixelriffs, where my Empire's SMP and Hardcore Survival Guide series are currently ongoing. I stream three days a week on Twitch, doing behind-the-scenes work for the aforementioned YouTube series, and I'm also the voice of the unofficial Hermitcraft recap, which you can find through a quick search on YouTube. Aside from that, I'm at Pixelriffs on both Twitter and Instagram. Joel, where can people find you online? Everything I am up to online, including my illustration and design portfolio, is at joelduggan.com. You'll also have a link there to the citadelcafe.com, which is the other podcast I do about sci-fi and fantasy entertainment. Lots of cool Star Trek stuff coming out this month, as well as uh, later on in December, we've got The Witcher and The Mandalorian. So lots of great content coming to the Citadel Cafe. You can follow me at Joel Duggan on social media and, of course, Joel Duggan on Twitch, where I am playing Minecraft and Satisfactory these days. Thanks for visiting the Spawn Chunks. The world outside is infinite, but you don't need to know that yet. Mm -hmm.